leadership in the family from the sermon series, Take the Lead, spoken by Pastor Dan Bailey. We're continuing our series called Take the Lead, Leadership in Times of Uncertainty. So for today's purposes, uh, we're going to look at the book of Ruth, and I'm sorry we'll never do the book justice because it really needs to be read in entirety in one sitting, but we're gonna, there's some incredible lessons of leadership in the family there. Uh, and for our purposes today, I want you to feel free to define family maybe a little looser, not just your traditional family, a blended family. I had a blended family myself with many different kids, sometimes living there for a season and moving out and it changed over the period of time. Of course, I have my core family. But even if you're not connected in any particular way right now, define it as those you're doing life with, those who know you really well, you can't fake it in front of, uh, and you know them as well too. So uh, that's going to be our, our topic this morning, leadership in the family. Before we begin, uh, let's ask the Lord into this sacred time. And I pray that you'll quiet your hearts and be able to receive exactly what God has for you today. So, Father, we invite you into this moment. We thank you, God, that you are on the throne. We pray against every distraction that the enemy might want to bring in. And we ask for the freedom of your spirit as we declare your word, as your word goes forth, that it will land, that it will take root and bring true change. And that, God, we would see that even in this time, you're doing your best work. So bless us, Lord, as we study and look into your word and hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but I don't like uncertainty. If anybody does, uh, I'll have to talk to you later. We have a lust to know. It goes back to the Garden of Eden when rather than choosing to walk in a trusting relationship with God, we opted instead to try to be like God, to master our own destiny. Our default as humans is control mode, if we're honest. But we're never meant to be the knowers. We were meant to be the trusters, to be in a responsive relationship to God. Trust is our yes to God's leadership. In 1990, my father called to give me the sad news that he had uh, been diagnosed with cancer. It was pretty devastating. And the worst part was that he only had been given about six months to live. So this was quite shocking because he looked healthy, was strong. He was in the prime of his career working at the National Office for the Christian Missionary Alliance. And with only six months to live, he said, I've decided that I've settled this issue with God, that I'm not going to be a medical case. In fact, I want to give the best of my life, my most, the months that I have, I want them to be fruitful. I want to give them to God and to the work that he has me to do. So he opted not to go into chemotherapy. He believed that God had more for him to do but he also was comfortable and at peace knowing that God had ordained the number of or days for him. So none of us in the family liked this plan, but since God, Dad had settled the matter with God, we complied. And after years of defying the odds, we urged Dad to go back to the doctor. One year went to two, two to three, three to four, four to five. My dad was still looking good, going strong, ministering on a daily basis. Who wouldn't want to know? if the cancer was gone, if it was in remission. But every time we asked our dad or urged him, he would say to us, kids, I've already settled the matter with God. I'm okay not knowing. I have strength for the day, and that's all I need. And so for 10 years, my dad, not knowing what the outcome would be, 
Having gone well beyond the expiration date the doctors gave him, we watched in real time as my father entrusted his life to the care and timing of God. It wasn't so much what he said or what he did in those days that left a lasting impression, a lasting impact. It was just how he lived. How he lived that had life-altering transformation, transformative impact upon us as a family. His faith in the one who anchored his life became the legacy he left after he was gone. Leadership in the family, it's a little different than leadership in other places. Uh, last week, or the, we started this series with Pastor Mike talking about leadership at work. And so that's one level of familiarity. And then it was last week where Pastor David talked about leadership in Christian community. So the circle gets a little bit more intimate. And today we're talking about leadership in the family. So now we're really getting there. And of course, next week, we'll finish the series. Pastor Sunita will talk about leadership leading ourselves. So... That can't get any tighter than that. But it's different because it's not like when you lead a company or you're a CEO and you're leading a staff or even leading a group here at the church. It doesn't require a certain acumen, certain skill set. It it's not necessarily hierarchy, uh, hierarchical because in our, our text today, we're going to see that Ruth, the daughter-in-law, was able to influence her mother-in-law and even change her life and change history itself. And leadership is about influence. So it's not necessarily top down. It can be side to side and bottom top. And it's not about blood. Ruth was not a blood relative. She was an outsider. Even somebody probably Naomi wasn't too happy about when her son married her as a foreigner. But it is more potent. Because among family, we can't hide from each other. It sort of has like a, marin a marinating effect over time where we absorb it. It's more caught than it is taught. It's not about a certain moment or a speech, like it might if you're listening to a podcast, it might influence you a little bit. It's different because it can have life-altering impact upon reflection. It's like a deposit made in one another within our family that has impact over time. The setting of the book of Ruth is the time of judges. This is a time without leadership. It's before the king's arrive. And it judges in the book of judges, judges, it says that people did as they saw fit. They did whatever they wanted to do. It was evil. Evil was prevalent. It was a period of rebellion. They were in a cycle of sin. Maybe you're familiar with this. I know in my life I have been where God pledges himself. He betroths himself. He chooses them. You're my people. And he makes promises and he shows himself strong. And then over time, the Israelites would rebel. And in that rebellion would come calamity. They would be overtaken by their enemies. And then they would cry out for help. Ever been there? We need God, of course, when we're in the crisis or when we run ourselves right into a brick wall. And then God would raise up a judge and for, to deliver his people. We know of the judges throughout, throughout the book. There's many of them, including Saul, Samuel, King David, Deborah. I think we did a sermon about Deborah as a judge. Once And God, in his mercy, would deliver his people again. And, of course, they would return with gladness. But then again, slowly, complacently, would set in. And they would set out in being influenced by culture and idolatry and taken in and captivated by all the things of the world and the cycle 
would go on. This is the setting. And I want to give you just a little summary of the first five verses of Ruth. I'm going to paraphrase them or summarize them as best I can. And then we're going to pick up in verse 6 in just a minute. But this is really a story of, from the point of view of Naomi, who's married to the patriarch, Elimelech. And Elimelech decides that because there's a famine in the land, in the town of Bethlehem, where the setting takes place, the scene takes place, which ironically is known as the house of bread, but there's no bread in Bethlehem this season. And even though it's the promised land, it's the land God provided, it's where he said, I will be your God and I will take care of you, Elimelech tries to play the stock market, tries to get ahead of his counterparts, and he decides to move his family, his wife Naomi and his two sons, Malone and Chilion, and they go to the, the, the country of Moab, which Moab is like Sin City. They're not in a favorable relationship with Israel. They had worship of many gods, and the women there had a reputation for seducing the men of Israel. So there wasn't good feeling or good rapport among them. But he makes the decision because he doesn't want to struggle. He doesn't necessarily trust God, and he makes a compromise to go to Moab. But things don't go as planned. Soon after arrival, Elimelech passes away. Naomi is now a widow. And her two sons marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah, two women, foreign women. I'm sure that was not the dream of Naomi. And soon after, years after that, those two sons die. And here we have Naomi, a widow from Bethlehem, living in Moab, having lost her husband and two sons, and now with two women, foreign women, daughters-in-law, who have been doing life together for years, all of them in the throes of grief and pain, wondering what hit them, and facing a very uncertain future together. So this is where our story picks up in verse 6, if you'll read along with me. Um, and it, it's worth listening in because there's so much here packed in these verses. Then she arose, Naomi, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her, her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? I have, I, have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. 
And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went out, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Powerful words there. Maybe during this season, you can relate to Naomi's feelings of despair. The life you once knew looks unrecognizable right now. In the future, well, feels a little uncertain, doesn't it? Maybe the losses you have experienced over these long months of COVID, the missed graduations, Weddings, vacations, family reunions, even funerals have taken their toll on your outlook and perspective and hopes. Or perhaps it's the insecurity of your job that keeps you up at night. You wonder, how will I ever provide if it goes away? Or maybe it's the burden you're shouldering right now as your kids begin, prepare to begin a new school year. Will they be okay? Am I doing the right thing? How can I work and homeschool at the same time? None of the choices we face during this season feel like good ones. And with information constantly changing as we listen to different media outlets, how can we ever lead confidently? But I want to encourage you today, amidst this present shared struggle, when it comes to family, leadership is not taught in the classroom of comfort. It's caught under the contrary conditions of change. There is great opportunity hidden within the uncertainty you and I are facing. You see, with leadership, when times are hardest, your influence can be greatest. Struggle is the canvas upon which your leadership can become truly transformative, life-altering and lasting. God wants to use this time to build your families, to build in them, within them, and you a depth of character, the open road of ease and comfort could never, ever afford you. This is good news for you and your family if you'll look for God within the shadows here. Don't waste this moment. Don't shrug it off. Don't run from it. Embrace it. God's in it, and he's up to something good. Your leadership at home today can leave a legacy tomorrow. I want to share with you three qualities of transformative leadership that are embedded in this first chapter 
of Ruth. Leadership that transforms, as I mentioned, that is life-altering and lasting, almost like a deposit made that, can, that your, your family can draw upon at another time in their life. That's transformation. That's our vision here at Metro. Leadership that transforms. First, leadership that transforms demonstrates tenacity in adversity. Demonstrates tenacity in adversity. I like that word tenacity. I used to use it with my teams a lot. It's the ability to get back up, to see it through, to not quit. It's grit. It's unpopular because it's not romantic. It's not, uh, it's underneath when nobody's watching type of thing. And we read in verse 6, and we look at verse 6, it says this, then, speaking of Naomi, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in Bethlehem and Judah and given them food. So here we see three women connected by grief. They've been doing life together, so they're family. They've become family. They know each other. I'm sure Naomi was the matriarch. And she had been teaching these two younger women, Orpah and Ruth. And this grief is real. But we see here that at some point in time, they got up. They said, hey, and Naomi said, I'm, I'm from the land in Bethlehem. I hear there's a possibility. And they make this heart-wrenching, gritty decision to get up together and make their way back. Think of Ruth. What a decision. She had her whole life in Moab had a husband, life was good, and now she's making a decision in her grief to return to, a, to become a foreigner in a strange land. To lead well in adversity, one of the most important leadership principles, which isn't always noticed right away, it's reflected on later. You must learn to grieve as you go forward. Grieving is absolutely critical because we can't let go if we don't grieve. But the thing is, we can't grieve in a vacuum, in a moment. I've tried. There's things I'm grieving still to this day. The Lord gives me room and I'm learning in my life to let it go. So I, because in letting go, in grieving, when we let go, we are now positioned to pivot and to be fluid and to move to do the next thing that God's doing in our life. We have to hold grieving and grit hand in hand as a leader. We can't grieve and stay put, but we can't grit our way forward and not grieve. They go together. Years ago, my son Daniel was attacked by a dog. I'm going to spare you the gruesome details of that, but it was gruesome and horrific and traumatic. And he had hundreds of stitches. If he were to visit today, you'd see his scars around his eye, one eye and on one forearm, just deep, deep scars all up his forearm and his back and neck. Well, you know, as he healed, he just wore it as a badge of honor like he was a tough guy. Kids were often afraid of him for that reason. But it was pretty bad, and he had a period of time of physical rehab and emotional rehab. He had counseling. We bought him a dog right away, so the point of fracture could also be a point of healing. He's an animal lover to this day. But there came a day, we had to set a date when he would walk to the bus. We couldn't drive him to school forever. And so we agreed on a date, and when that date came around, with all the strength he could muster as a nine-year-old boy, he got dressed, put his book back on, and with everything he could, it was very solemn that day, we watched him, prayed over him, went, watched him walk to the bus. When he came back from school, I said, how'd you do? He said, Dad, I tried to be strong, but a couple tears just 
came down. I didn't want them to, but they came down my face. And I said, yeah, but you did it. What an example. I'm not talking about the leadership of me as a father in that moment. I'm sure there was some. But what a metaphor of leadership for life. Because that's what we do. Sometimes we need that walk by, Lord, help me walk but not faint kind of faith just to get to the bus stop. Isaiah 40, 28 through 31 says this. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles and they shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. I don't know what decision you're facing today that you don't want to make. I know you can't make it a good one without the process of grieving. But I do know this, when you're hit with crisis, when uncertainty is there, there's never going to feel. There's times we don't feel the presence of God even though he is there. We can't see the wisdom of God although it's there. And it's going to require, and we, I know that we want the blueprint, we want the app, we want to see the big picture before we take a step, a step, but it is a life, it is a faith walk. And the truth is, folks, faith is more gritty than it will ever be pretty. We romanticize it when we look back and we call out the faithfulness of God and we see the footprints behind us, but in that moment, we need that walk but not faint kind of faith to grit it out. Your success or your leadership in your home is not going to be about, at the end of the day, will not be remembered or known about your successes and about how you rode the wave of good things and good tidings and how your decisions made for an easy way. Because we can't save each other from a hard life. It's difficult. But the greatest gift is to show that in the midst of great adversity, you showed tenacity. You had the faith to get up and to do the next thing. I don't know if that's a temp job for you today, the one that seems beneath you. I don't know if it means staying at home when you had plans to go to work. It's not prescriptive, it's different for all of us. It may be postponing school, it may be starting school. It could look a lot of different ways for each one of us. But I want you to know that God is with you. He gives strength to those who are weak and he's speaking and he's giving you instructions if you'll quiet your heart. Don't beat yourself up that you're grieving losses. You gotta grieve them, they're real. But then get up so that you can, as you let go, you can find the majesty of God in the next moment. You may not see it right away, but as you go forward, not only will you be blessed in your family, but it will be a legacy that you lead as you show tenacity and adversity. Secondly, leadership that transforms chooses loyalty over expediency. Chooses loyalty over expediency. Expediency is just how you get something done the easiest way possible. I'm guilty of that. Sometimes it's a shortcut. You just want to get to the end of something. And sometimes that means compromise, stepping on someone, or even an immoral decision. So it's not always the best way to be expedient. And loyalty needs to rise above expediency. In verses 8 through 15, Naomi, these seven verses of this first chapter are committed to Naomi just begging her daughters. She has a moment of clarity as they start back to Bethlehem. She says, wait, 
If you come with me, your lives are over. There's no helping me. I'm too old to remarry. There's nothing there for me. I'm going back in shame. I left my people. Now I'm coming back with my hat in my hand. And you will be beggars like me. And there's no way as foreigners your life will turn out well. And she begs and begs and begs. And eventually Orpah takes the release. <laughs> she needed help. She struggled for a while too. They're connected. Didn't feel right. But Orpah eventually, scripture says, she went back to her people and to her gods, plural. She went back to what she knew. But Ruth clung. <laughs> How beautiful. Who do you need to thank today for being stubbornly loyal to you in your life? I can name a bunch uh, within my family and without, but particularly in my family. But among my family, there's one brother that sticks out, and that's my brother Steve, lives in California. My brother John was the empathetic one. My sister Jody, they're the empathizers, could cry with you and really feel your pain. My brother Steve, not so much. He wasn't a crier. He just rang the doorbell in crisis and was there. And he just looked practically at what could be done, and he wouldn't take no for an answer. I'm so thankful for that kind of leadership in my life, that stubborn loyalty to me. When I tried to say, no, I made my bed, I got to lie in it, he wouldn't let me walk it alone. He stayed with me, and I wouldn't be standing here today without the dogged loyalty of my brother Steve. You see, it was more expedient for Ruth to go home. Back home, she could remarry. She had family. She had protection. It's a patriarchal world. It wasn't safe to be a woman alone. And despite that, despite it being so much more expedient to go back where she came from, something in her conviction says, no, I began a life with you, Naomi. I married your son. I'm sticking with you. But I think she was also demonstrating a loyalty to not just Naomi, because if you do that, then it's Naomi's people and Naomi's God. And there's something that she probably remembered over the years hearing the stories of the God of Isaac and Jacob and how he delivered his, the loyalty of God that he would not quit despite their rejections and rebellions. What kind of God is this? She was used to appeasing gods. In Moab, you appease so you maybe get favor. But here's a God relentlessly pursuing his people despite their behavior. And then Ruth makes this famous pledge you often hear at weddings in verse 16, but this is to a mother-in-law, so imagine that. But they're beautiful words, a pledge. When Naomi pleads with her one last time to go back with her sister-in-law, Orpah, Orpah's on her way back, go with Orpah, please go. And Ruth says in verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Ruth's loyal devotion to Naomi changed the whole story in her family. You couldn't see it in the moment. There were some years of process and waiting, but God was working behind the scenes, and it was this loyalty that caught the attention. I'm sure it was also her beauty. A man named Boaz who owned a field later on comes into the story. I'm sure Boaz wasn't a dumbass, as they say. But what caught his attention was the loyalty, the character, 
of this woman. She didn't frolic with the younger men to try to take an expedient route to get ahead there. Her loyalty became a reputation that preceded her as a foreigner in a land, and it's that loyalty that began to change. It gave weight to her words. It gave her clout. It gave her social credit. We undermine uh, this in leadership today. Culture says, be loyal as long as you can benefit. As long as you're getting something back, be loyal. But if you don't get anything back, there's no point in being loyal. And that's how our word world works without commitment. Customer loyalty with credit cards always cracks me up. If you'll let us charge you exorbitant interest, we'll give you a perk every now and then. I don't, I don't know how that's loyalty, I don't know. But Jesus' loyalty is while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the loyalty of God to you. And because we are connected with God and have this life-changing life of God within us, the spirit of Christ, that we're called to loyalty to those that God has put in our care. Loyalty is indispensable when it comes to transformative leadership. And lastly, leadership that transforms lives expectantly within mystery. Lives expectantly within mystery. That's hard to do, right? We like to know. Naomi returns to Bethlehem in shame, and we'll read in, in some of these verses, you can read that she is, she's just embarrassed. And she has nothing going for her, no future. And as the people see her coming back, they say, is that Naomi? Ten years have gone by, so I'm, I'm sure she's aged. But she's also had a lot of sorrow and grief, and so probably the aging was even more. And the countenance of her face was no longer pleasant. Na Naomi means pleasant. But she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Mara means bitter. She wore that like a cloak. She said, God has judged me. God has declared me. God has turned his face from me. And she's not blaming God. This isn't, it might be pity, but she's not blaming God. She's acknowledging God's sovereignty. He's God. He saw what we did. He saw us flee our homeland. He saw us get mixed up in Moab. And now I have nothing. I'm coming home. And that's just the way it is. And so she's wearing this shame as, as a cloak around her. Naomi felt hopeless. Catch verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. What looked like a pointless venture back to Bethlehem with no hope in future, there was God working in the worst of times behind the scenes, and at just the right time, it was barley harvest. God was doing something. Something new was going to spring up from all that, that they had lost. And that he was going to bring someone as a divine appointment into their, into their relationship to change things completely. Naomi felt hopeless, but it was barley harvest. And Ruth, still expectant, asked Naomi if she can go in the field and glean. And Naomi tells her where to go. And Naomi keeps her head down. She works hard. She's gleaning. And gleaning is just collecting the scraps left behind. It was a, a kind thing to do uh, back in the day. When you harvested, you leave something behind for those who don't have as much and are struggling for the poor. And so here, here's Ruth, young Moabite foreign woman gleaning in a field. 
She is unprotected. She's vulnerable. She keeps her head down and she keeps working. And during that time, Ruth catches the attention of Boaz. As I mentioned before, he was the owner of the field. But he also happened to be a relative of Elimelech, Naomi's late husband. And he notices Ruth and he sees what Ruth is doing. And she sees that she doesn't chase after the young guys and she is faithful and he heard about her loyalty to Naomi, Elimelech's wife. And Ruth musters up the courage after con confiding with Naomi to go ask Boaz to be their kinsman redeemer, which he was a, a someone in kin that could actually redeem the property. A lot of property was leased back then. and He paid whatever had to be settled, he paid. So he removed their debt, but he did more. He gave his life to Ruth. He paid a debt. He gives his life to Ruth in marriage. And from their line, from their son, comes Obed. And Obed becomes the father of Jesse. Jesse becomes the father of King David, the greatest king in Israel's history, leading the way to Jesus, the eternal king, who stands to you today and says, I'm your kingsman redeemer. You're now part of my lineage. I've paid your debt. I've wiped away your disgrace, but I've also given you myself, and your heritage is now in me. What a God. See, God had prepared all of this in advance. It was all in the hidden. It was all in the mystery of life. The book of Ruth shows us the hidden work of God in the worst of times. Providence is a little different than sovereignty. Naomi understood sovereignty. God, I'm God, and I can do as I please. But providence is a little different. It says, I am God, but I will only act towards you in accordance with my character, my love, my wisdom, my grace, my goodness, my kindness. The providence of God. Romans 8.28 probably defines it the best. And we know that for those of us who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God's not wasting anything. I don't know if you've ever seen a tapestry in the making you know, when they're knitting or however they do that on the back of a cloth or a canvas. But as they're, as they're working, all of the work just looks like chaos because you have to work in the back. Only in the mind of the artist is anything of semblance happening on the other side. All you see are threads going everywhere, yarn or whatever's being used going all different directions, knots and frays, nothing to look at. And that's often from our side, from our limited understanding or view that's how our life looks. That's how it looks right now, I'm sure, for most of us. But on the other side of that tapestry is the brilliance, the imagination, the redeeming work, the creative work, the recreative work of God that says we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. God is working it all together for our good. I, don't, I want you to know, Metro Church, that God in his providential care is weaving together all your mistakes, your biggest regrets, your greatest successes, the best and worst of your life. The divorce, the bankruptcy, the unexpected move, the promotion, the loss of, the, of a loved one, the birth of a new one. The friend who walked out, the relationship that eludes you, the loneliness that dogs you, the fears you carry today for your children as a new school year begins, and all the craziness 
of COVID that confuses all of us. God is not lost on you. God is for you. That's providence, that God is for you despite what things look like in ways you cannot see. And that not only is he working for your good, he is the prize, he is enough. Because at the end of the day, as he's preparing things around us, he's changing us for the two to meet and we can find life as it was meant to be lived. He's working in the shadows, even now, weaving a masterful, masterful story only he could conceive. I started this sermon, I'll end it uh, in a similar way, but I mentioned that my dad had, was diagnosed with cancer in 1990. Well, during that same year, my brother John, who was a pastor in Connecticut at that time, was involved in a project. There was a historical home, four-story, beautiful white house that just stood there, but it was somewhat dilapidated. So it was next door to him. And there were developers that were going to tear it down to build some buildings there. And so my brother offered a solution. He argued that you can't tear it down. He delayed the project and proposed with the mayor and other city officials that if you will dig a foundation on the church property and you will get the equipment to raise a house, however that's done, I've never really seen it done, and put it in and then give us a check for 35000 then you're good to go with your development and the house will be saved and it will stand there for the city of Milford to see. And that's what happened. All of that took place in 1990 and then that house was there but a nine-year process of renovation began with a small church chipping in where they could, doing what they can, volunteers, all the work wasn't spectacular. But over nine years, it came, it was restored into this majestic home. As my dad's life was ebbing away in that same time, working as unto the Lord, giving his best to God as he, as he was phasing out and crossing over to eternity, he would die in 2000, January 2000, but in 1999, there was a consecration ceremony to dedicate that house to God for his use. It was the fall of 1999. My father led that consecration ceremony. He would pass in just a few months. And he dedicated that house to God for restoration, for people, for pastors, for missionaries, for leaders, or anyone in transition that needed a place to stay. It was dedicated. And then my father passed in 2000. Little did I know that after his passing, I would face the most uncertain times of my loss, of my life loss, difficult days. There was a period of time where I said, call, don't call me Dan, call me Mara, because the Lord has forgotten me. The Lord has turned his face from me. I've made enough mistakes that the things that are happening to me from other people and other things and just the randomness of it, my conclusion was, well, maybe God has moved on. That's a deep, dark place to be. But little did I know that the house my father was consecrated in 1999 would become the home of my own restoration in 2009, a decade later, where I would stop and pause in life and experience the kindness of God, that he would renew, remove my shame and give my name back, where I began to see that he was weaving the threads of my life together. And I'm not saying that it's a story where, it, you know, I can say it on this side, it was very uh, romantic and easy. It was difficult days, but I began to hope again. I began to see the footprints of God in my past, and he was making a new way for me, and I began to hope again and dream. And it led me to Nyack 
to seminary, to so many other places of restoration over the next 10 years to here we are in 2020. God was always at work. He had never lost sight. He was doing his best work in the shadows. Leadership, people, is not about finding God's perfect plan and then executing it flawlessly because you will not do so. All of us carry wounds because of our parents. This has been going on since Adam. And that's not a reason to make bad choices or bad decisions because choices we make have consequences. But God is always pursuing in the midst of that saying, follow me, get on with me so that I can show you my goodness and my, and my mercy and I can lead you in paths of righteousness. You see, it's not about finding that perfect plan in a sea of plans. It's recognizing, hear me, it's recognizing that your life is God's plan, that he is in, at work in your story, and your story is tied to his glory. Transformative leadership begins and ends with knowing that God is for you, that he is weaving together the threads of your life and your family's life, all to reveal his glory and his grace. And when you know this, you can be a person of grit. You can leave a legacy of, of grit and your family will know when they face their hard times that they can have that kind of faith that God's not absent in the struggle. And, choose and you can choose loyalty over expediency because, you know, there's no shortcut that can compete with God's way. What a gift to leave your family and you can live expectantly. How about that? That you can look for God and show your family that even in this mystery, God's doing something. Look at that and start to notice and see in the ordinary things of life that God is at work through it all. Because God is faithful to his own, he will never forsake the work of his hands. In the end, the legacy you leave is the God you believe, and the God we believe is good all the time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word today. So humbled by it, so humbled to preach it, because I am a product of your goodness and grace. What could I boast of except the cross of Jesus Christ? So, Father, I bless your name, and I pray that this world, word would uh, take root and that would work transforming power in each person, and you would help us to be leaders among our family to the glory of your name. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm back. It's been a while since I preached, so I forgot we, we do have next steps. We like to take you through some things. <laughs> Uh, next, uh, some things you can choose. If you have your phone and you have the Metro app, please open that. Uh, you can go to our website, I think, emetro.org backslash Sunday. And um, you can find it there. If you're new, we'd love to you'd fill out as much information as you can there so we can get to know you. But in response to today's message, if, uh, if you want to receive Jesus Christ and become a part of the family of God, Will you check that box? We want to be able to support you in your journey, in your walk as a child of God. Number two, I will trust God's leading for the next step in my own life, in my family's life, knowing that he has the blueprint. Again, God's not asking you to figure it out. Don't sit in paralysis trying to figure out 
how everything's going to play out. You'll never get it right. But he is speaking to you in your moment and he is leaving you breadcrumbs to follow. A commitment to just trust God's leading for the next thing in your life. Three, I will remind those in my family circle of my devotion to them and look for ways to demonstrate it. Right now, more than maybe faces show, people are shaken. Hey, I've been shook. These days just drag on sometimes. And sometimes when you get alone in your thoughts, it can be tough. This is when we need to demonstrate loyalty, our commitment, our devotion to one another more than ever. For I will commit to praying for all the kids beginning a new season, a new year of school, and the parents who care for their well-being, who maybe are faced with decisions, as Sunita prayed for earlier. Will you commit over these next weeks leading up to school to really pray for our kids and for our college students, high school, all ages? This is a difficult time. This is unprecedented. We need wisdom, but we need God's peace. And five, I will... Uh, I will read 1 Corinthians 9, chapter, 20, uh, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 in preparation for next week's sermon by Pastor Sunita on leading ourselves.